Hello everyone, I'm Davo. And I'm Steve-O. And you are listening to the Y Factor Podcast! Woo! Yeah! So to all our listeners, welcome. We are prepared to deliver you another one of our whys. We aim to answer all questions big and small in this world by asking the simple question, why? We aim to use facts to draw our own conclusions and speculations to solve these questions. So Davo, the Tokyo Olympics recently just ended, and I don't know about you, but uh, I'm really sort of interested in the food that they've eaten and all that during their downtimes and, you know, rebuilding their bodies for the for the competition ahead. One thing I've really been interested in in is the sushi and sort of why they eat salmon you know on top of their sushi uh from my knowledge you know salmon's normally eaten alongside sushi but never on top so i was just very curious with that i hope you could explain that to me yeah that's a really really good question and a really good why um especially at this critical time um during during the COVID 19 pandemic when an extraordinary olympics was held in tokyo when you know the, the whole world is going through such a incredible uh, struggle with the pandemic, and it's good that they pulled it off almost without any issues. So yeah, I think the I think the Japanese did feed the Olympians quite well, and th- that shows in, in the in the medal score. As we all know, sushi is an unequivocal symbol of Japanese cuisine, and I think the statistics have shown. Especially that salmon sushi was the most popular sushi in Japan for six years in a row between 2012 and 2017, and salmon is obviously you know one of the one of the most popular fish in the world. However, believe it or not, salmon sushi actually has an incredibly short history, and it only came into existence in the 1990s. The 1990s, really. Yes. Yes. I thought sushi. So sushi was eaten in Japan for for centuries, hasn't it? So yes, yes, yes. Sushi is a Jap- uh, It's a long time Japanese tradition, and it was um, eaten by the Japanese previously because they needed a way to preserve their fish. Basically, the fish that they caught, they would they would salt in the fish and keep hold it with the rice so that they can um they can keep it for longer. And sushi has been around for over a thousand years. In Japanese history, however, the the use of salmon on sushi was only from the 1990s, and as a as a matter of fact, salmon sushi wasn't even developed by the Japanese. It was introduced to Japan by the Norwegians. Really? So how did that come about? Yes, yes. Good, you asked. So. I don't know if you, if if you listeners out there know this, but Norway has always been one of the countries that fished a lot of salmon. And in the 1970s, Norway began commercial, commercially farming salmon. A decade later, Norway accounted for half the total global population of salmon, and sorry, the global production of salmon. But by the end of the 1980s, Norway had a massive oversupply of salmon. And some of it actually had to be frozen because they had too much. And at the same time, in the late 1980s, Japan accounted for one-tenth of the world's total fish consumption. But its own fishing sector uh, only supplied 50% of domestic demand. And so, so yep. you're saying that 
in the 1990s, Norway had an oversupply of fish, but Japan had an oversupply. Uh, Japan had, you know, a growing demand for fish. So I'm guessing that was a perfect jigsaw puzzle for what was to come. Yes. So the Norwegian government saw this as an ideal market for their salmon. And in 1986, the Norwegian government launched Project Japan, which is an attempt to penetrate the Japanese market. And it sounds really simple. When there's supply, then you feel that, uh, when there's demand, you feel that demand with the supply. But it's not, that it wasn't actually that simple. So the Norwegians, through Project Japan, <coughs> learned enough about Japanese culinary customs to know that sashimi, raw fish, uh, was a major part of their seafood diet. And Japanese consumers needed to be convinced to eat raw salmon. There was just one issue with that. And that is that the Japanese traditionally stigmatized salmon as a low-grade fish, which was only served cooked, not raw, because wild salmon from the nearby Pacific Ocean tended to carry parasites. uh, And those were dangerous if the fish were not cooked. Norwegian farmed Atlantic salmon, on the other hand, didn't carry those risks. But the Japanese tradition for hundreds of years has been to never eat raw salmon. So they needed to come up with a solution. And it took them a while, from 86 all the way till 1992. And in 92, they managed to get a large Japanese food company called Nichire to buy 5,000 metric tons of Norwegian salmon for almost nothing, almost free. The only condition of that was that Nichire had to use that Norwegian salmon that was given to them in this deal to be sold in grocery stores as sushi, which they did. And after Nichire started selling that salmon on sushi, it helped normalize eating raw salmon in Japan. And this led to an increase in sushi restaurants serving salmon sushi. Oh, okay. So that makes a lot of sense now. So I initially thought that it was tradition for Japanese people to eat raw salmon on their sushi for, you know, for I don't know, as part of their tradition. But yeah, it's, it, was, it was very interesting to know that it was in fact Norway who introduced this to Japan, you know, through yep. a contractual deal. Yep, yep. And it was re- it's really hard because, yeah, they had to basically convince the Japanese to change, essentially change their culinary customs and one of the things that one of the other things they did on top of that was they i'm sure some of you have heard of the popular japanese cooking show iron chef yep yeah so the norwegian government through that project they actually paid renowned japanese chefs on that show uh, to endorse norwegian salmon uh, on national television during the 90s and the favorable coverage from that helped boost public perceptions that the salmon was tasty, safe, and good for sushi. And then as a result of both of those factors, salmon sushi became a ubiquitous staple in restaurants, in restaurants in Japan, and also in Japanese restaurants around the world. And I guess this example shows that a good marketing campaign has the power to change the dietary habits of an entire country. Now, it sounds easy. Well, let me put it to you this way then. If you think it's that easy, listeners out there, your mission 
is to try and convince Australians to adopt steak and kimchi meat pies. Can you do that, yes or no? I don't know. I, I think already for me, that's a, that's a definite no. Okay. Now, if, you, if that's a definite no for you, then you'll see, you can, you can imagine how big of a challenge and how big of an accomplishment it was for the Norwegians to change the, Japanese, the entire Japanese culinary habits. So kudos to them. Yeah. Wow. I, I never knew how influential Norwegians could be. And honestly, speaking of Norwegians, you know, they've really had an influential role in history. Uh, as we know, during the med early medieval times, the people that inhabited uh, Norway were, I'm sure you've heard of Vikings before. Of course, the Vikings. They were, they were, um, they were a very big civilization back over a thousand years ago. Yeah, and th th they conquered, um, they even conquered uh, England. There was a Viking invasion of England, and they had a long history and influence in Northern Europe. And yeah, they were around for a good almost a thousand years. But then suddenly the Vikings disappeared. They disappeared before the they disappeared before the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution and all of that. Do you know why the Vikings suddenly disappeared? Yeah, so I've always thought that was something interesting. Uh, I've been always curious as to why, you know, because the Vikings were so powerful and very famous for their seafaring ways that they suddenly disappeared uh, without a trace. So, generally, the Battle of Stamford Bridge in 1066 was, is, has been seen as a traditional sort of ending of Viking, uh, I guess, of the Viking era. Uh, so, I, I did read into the reasons of why the Vikings disappeared. And I think one important thing to note is that we can't consider Vikings as a people group, but rather a way of life. So Vikings are technically they're part of a broader people group called the Norsemen or Norse. Right, Norse, yes, yes. Yeah, and Norsemen, you know, they're ancestors of the present-day Scandinavians like Norwegians, Swedes, Danes, yep. Icelandic, Icelandic peoples. Yep. Yeah, and... So they, they inhabited Scandinavia, and what happened was, during that period of time between the 8th to 10th centuries, most of these Norsemen were farmers, and more often than not, they were land-owning farmers. So what they would do is, during the seasons where they would farm, they would stay at home, and it was a way of them gaining wealth on a full-time basis. So farming was their full-time job, but... Some of them also had a side hustle as well. And can you guess what that side hustle was? Uh, fishing? Very close. So raiding villages off the coasts of England and continental Europe. Ah, like pirates. Okay, got it. Medieval yeah. pirates. Yeah, okay. So the word Viking actually comes from an old Norse term meaning seafarer or pirate, although that, it, it, although that is disputed by some scholars. Yep. So this really lucrative side hustle was for these farmers, these Norse farmers, to go out on longboats, raid other settlements in England and, and uh, the rest of Europe, basically raiding you know, villages and monasteries for gold and taking people away as slaves. It was just a quick way for them to gain wealth, which they could either invest back home or on their farms, 
or for example, to sell, to buy the things that they wanted to buy. So after you've listened to this, you realize that this is definitely a way of life and not to be considered as a, a, a people group per se, because a very small proportion of Norsemen actually participated in this Viking way of life. Right. right. So by understanding that Vikings are actually, you know, a way of living of these Norsemen, we understand that because of that, they were never conquered and they never, you know, died out. They just simply stopped raiding other countries and basically the Viking way of life disappeared. Oh, so the Vikings aren't are, are more. It's, it's more so a lifestyle choice habit rather than a civilization which suddenly got uh, wiped out. Yeah, so it's more of a, a tradition that right. a lot of these people from the the Nordic cultures had. Wow. But I guess that begs the question: you know, why did that happen? Why did the Viking way of life disappear? You know, why? after you, you know the the 10 to 11, 1100s. Yeah, why? Why is that? So there's a few reasons for that. The simple answer is that, you know, raiding other villages and all that simply wasn't financially or practically viable. Mm-hmm. So one example is the Norse society itself changed. So back in the day when the Viking era was at its heyday, many of these Norsemen all owned land and were all able to go out and, you know, pillage other, you know, villages and all that for money mm-hmm. but consequently because of that you know some of these people got a lot richer they became landowners and landlords and often they would get a lot of other people to work on their farms a lot of other people being you know fellow fellow citizens fellow mm-hmm. people you know fellow Norsemen, which meant that there were a lot less people available to go out and raid you know all these places you know, for money and or for slaves and whatnot, because they were all at home, you know, working on the farms or working for these landlords who'd gotten rich over the years from, you know, pillaging. So that was the first reason. The second reason is that back in the day where Vikings were in their heyday, a lot of these European nations were decentralized. So it was mainly lords and petty kings owning, you know, small portions of land, which meant they didn't have a big army or defense force to fight against the Vikings, hence made it, making it easy for Vikings to go on their longboats, you know, go to England, burn some villages, get some money, and go on and run. Yep. But over, but over the years, people learned from that, and by the end of the Viking era, there were central governments which had large standing armies, meaning that they were able to defend effectively against the Vikings. Not to mention that all these villages and monasteries that were pillaged regularly on a regular basis, they were literally, you know, best friends with the Vikings because they would see them, you know, every season. They learned from these mistakes and they actually moved further inland um, and fortified themselves, making it harder for Vikings to reach these areas. So consequently, you could feel as a as a Viking, this is so hard to get money and all that or to, to pillage and to raid. Why do it in the first place, right? So mm. there was that lack of incentive due to much more, uh, much greater difficulty in raiding these places. Right, right. And then the final, final reason which I'll get into is uh, a lot of them were converted to Christians, uh, and basically Christianity says that you know 
your Viking ways are evil. So because thou thou shall not steal. Yeah, exactly. So because right. of that, the Viking way of life disappeared, and you know the the descendants of Vikings are the people that you see now as Danes, Swedes, Norwegians, Icelandic peoples. Wow. Wow. That's a really big cultural change and a big civilizational shift. Ah, okay. That That's fascinating. I had no idea. Yeah, was, yeah exactly. And, you know, as soon as I, that idea that Vikings were a way of life rather than a people group uh, sort of came into the, that, uh, sorry, it made me understand that they simply just stopped doing it more than anything else. That's that's rather unusual and stands out compared to most other civilizations, which more often than not got conquered by another civilization. Exactly, and lost their lost their ways. Yeah, yeah. So wow, that's a that's a really really cool fact. Hi there, listeners. We hope you are enjoying this episode. Stick around; more exciting content to come. A lot of the times, yeah, we talk about how things get um, conquered and uh, civilizations meet each other and they either, they either trade with each other or they conquer each other. Some of the times, if it comes to the meeting of civilizations, there's an exchange of products and there's an exchange of goods and services, isn't, isn't there? Yeah, I, I agree. And we often, when we look at our current cuisine right now, uh, we realize that maybe a couple of hundred years ago, they might not have even existed. Like I can think of an example being tomatoes cooked with eggs in Chinese cuisine. You know, tomatoes mm. actually came to China during the Ming Dynasty after the Spanish brought them there through trade. Mm. And I've noticed, actually I've noticed in terms of fruit, kiwi fruit is an interesting one because, you know, it, to, to my mind, I always think kiwi fruits from New Zealand um, because of the word kiwi in it. Mm. But was that through... Was that as a result of trade as well, or how did that come about? Ah, oh, great question, Steve. Why are why are kiwi fruits called kiwi fruits? Now, I, I talked a little about the Norwegian campaign marketing strategy earlier. There is actually a very very similar parallel in the instance of kiwi fruits. Now, I don't know if you know this, but kiwi fruits aren't actually native to New Zealand. Fruits no, no, no way, they're not. Yeah, well, it's interesting because most people, when they hear the word kiwi, they associate that with New Zealand, right? Yeah. Right? Wrong. Kiwi fruits are actually native to China. No way. No, no, you're, you're kidding me. It can't be. It kiwi is. fruits are from China. Yep. Yep. Really? Specifically, the eastern and central regions of China. Oh, okay. Yeah. So... The Chinese name of kiwi fruits, it's, it's obviously not called kiwi fruits. The Chinese name of kiwi fruit is called mi hou tao. And in fact, the, um, the history of, of this fruit goes back over a thousand years. The very first descri- uh, description of that fruit was recorded in the Chinese encyclopedia dating back to the Song Dynasty in the 12th century. And yeah, people in Chinese have more, uh, people in China have more or less been consuming it for mihotao for a thousand years. And 
there was there was a name for this uh, in the English language, uh, which reflects this Chinese history, and the original name of the fruit was called the Chinese gooseberry. The Chinese gooseberry, really? I find yes. that hard to believe, mainly because you know gooseberries are tiny compared to kiwi fruits. Yes, but obviously. The, the Chinese gooseberry is, is bigger because China is a big country and New Zealand is a small country, right? So That is true. Yeah, yeah. But, so, so how did that link with kiwi fruits later on? Yeah, so just like we were talking about the, the trade and the, the, the linking of civilizations, a person from New Zealand brought back the first seeds of the Chinese gooseberry from China in 1906. 1906, and after that was uh, the seeds were brought back, they were grown across New Zealand's in the subsequent decades. Now, in 1959, there was there was a New Zealand produce company called Turners and Growers, and they felt that the the fruit, the Chinese gooseberry, needed a new name for uh, to export it around the world. And that would make sense. That yeah. would make sense since you're exporting from your own country, New Zealand. So naming it the Chinese gooseberry wouldn't make sense at all. No, it wouldn't. And in particular, they wanted to target the North American market, and they didn't. They wanted to make sure that the um the fruit, you know, didn't sound like it was coming from China, but rather from New Zealand. And so the company's top management came up with the name kiwi fruit, and it was oh. named after the native kiwi bird which also happens to be uh, small and brown, like the, like the fruit itself. Hmm. And they raised the name with an American importer, and the importer liked the name, and they began using the name immediately. And other growers in New Zealand soon caught on and adopted the name commercially as well, the name Kiwi Fruit. And as a result of subsequent uh, strong global marketing campaigns, the name kiwi fruit became associated with the fruit around the world uh, rather than the name Chinese gooseberry. So that is why everywhere you go in the world now, in, in most languages, uh, it's going to be called kiwi fruit. And that obscures the, the true origins of that fruit. And it's, it's, very, it's hard to believe that all that happened in less than 100 years. Yeah, it's very interesting to think that just over 100 years ago, it was known for its true origins in China, right? But all because of a, a brand change, it's now known as kiwi fruit throughout the world, you know, highlighting the power of branding, which obviously you mentioned earlier uh, when you talked about Norway influencing Japan with the salmon. Mm, exactly, exactly. Yeah, it just goes to show that a, yeah, a, a, a successful marketing campaign can really uh, achieve incredible results if done correctly, and yeah, this is this this the story of the kiwi fruit is a is a great example and a great tale of how a Chinese fruit was taken from its land of origin and ended up becoming an icon of another country, being that of New Zealand. Maybe we should take something from New Zealand as well and give it a Chinese name. What what do you have in mind? Uh, there's not much in New Zealand except except kiwi kiwi fruits and sheep, right? Hmm. Or we, or, or we can, or we can claim that the Chinese invented Lord of the Rings and Hobbiton. Oh, 
Oh, of course. Of course they did. Yeah. Yes, yes. Why not? Why There probably not? is a replica of Hobbiton somewhere in China, just like they have a replica with Eiffel Tower and the pyramids and all that as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a big theme park in China which have which has all the um all the icons of around around the world uh, in yeah. one place, and yeah, I guess it does show that the whole world can be put in in one location, and for people like that, people will go to those places. They feel like they've traversed the world, even though they've never left their own country. So That's... yeah, the, the the world because of globalization is um is getting smaller and smaller every year. Speaking of branding, I thought this was something interesting as well. So, as we all know, McDonald's is a huge brand, and it's got you know thirty six thousand restaurants across over a hundred countries. Wow! There are a handful of countries that have failed to take off. There's really? some countries that, yeah, there are some countries that actively ban McDonald's, and there are some countries that have had McDonald's but then have just completely failed. No way. How can McDonald's fail? It is like the ultimate symbol of successful commercial capitalism. Uh, how, why? Why did McDonald's fail in, in, in certain places? I don't. I can't. It, I can't understand. It beats me, especially when I go on the the old Macca's run for some penny pincher menu items. I always oh, think, yum. how can McDonald's not exist in our world? But it does in these countries. So I'll give you a few examples. There are nine countries that outright ban McDonald's. Uh, some of them reasons very obvious. Iran, for example, had a McDonald's until 1979. And then after the Iranian Revolution, they completely banned McDonald's for obvious reasons because they yeah. were best friends with the US. Yep. And yep. yep, yep, I can see that. I can totally see that. Yeah, so yeah, if you want to have McDonald's in Iran, there isn't any. Uh, North Korea as well, another special mention, for obvious reasons, completely ban McDonald's. They just don't like apple pie in North Korea. That's the main thing. They hate. Apple I think pie. it's either the apple pie or the the soft serve because it's such a cold uh, place already. They, they, you know, they they probably don't. They're probably not a huge fan of the, the cold items on the menu. Yeah, and the lead, and and the country uh, has too much sugar. So if you have any more sugar, like from the apple pie, uh, it will totally ruin. Uh, the national diet, so... Yeah, I think it's only one person in that country that really needs to care about their sugar intake. Ah, of course, of course. But yeah, some other countries, interestingly enough, uh, Macedonia, or nowadays called North Macedonia, they actually had a lot of McDonald's restaurants that all of a sudden closed on one day in May 2013. What? So all of their... So all of their restaurants closed in that single day, and on that next morning, customers were all met with a temporary closure sign in front of the McDonald's across the nation, and apparently it was regarding a contract dispute between the franchise owner in Macedonia, uh, between him and McDonald's Europe. So he refused to, basically there was a contract dispute, and that resulted in his loss of the license to run the restaurant. So overnight, all the restaurants closed in Macedonia. And nowadays, not a single McDonald's there. Wow. Wow. You'd think, you'd think a big company like McDonald's would be able to set their contracts in order, given um, you know, how long they've been in existence for. Yeah, but you know, they're a conglomerate 
multinational corporation that, you know, always wants to get its way. So not surprised yeah. that they want to force something onto a franchise owner. Oh, poor Macedonians. They don't have access to the, the, the Little Mac anymore. Yeah, they don't have access to the apple pies and the soft serve cones. No, the Ooh. BTS meal Macedonia. <laughs> There's enough, in Iceland as well, uh, it was interesting that they closed all their restaurants due to the financial crisis in 08, but they've all been rebranded as Metro restaurants instead. What? So if, yeah, think of Metro as a knockoff version of McDonald's. They've got an item called Heems Bulgari, if correct me if I'm pronouncing it correctly, listeners, that looks exactly like a Big Mac. Hmm. Okay, and I'm assuming it probably tastes exactly like a Big Mac. I'm assuming so as well. I've never tasted it at Heems Bulgari, but if I'm ever in Iceland, I'll give it a try. Um, so that, that, I thought that was very interesting. The Metro store sells cheaper versions of these McDonald's products, obviously. I'm not sure what their version of Robin McDonald is. Maybe it's a Viking McDonald. Of course, because, yeah, you know, the Vikings love Robin. So, exactly. you know how there's a Hamburglar? Yeah, well, the Hamburglar yeah. seems like he's actually um, Icelandic. It could be. The, the Hamburglar might be Icelandic. Mm. And, yeah, the, some other countries that have not taken off, Barbados and Jamaica, both in the Caribbean. I thought that was interesting as well. But looking into it, I can see why. The menu never catered for their local tastes, which include a lot of fresh produce like fish, chicken, uh, and other tropical treats. And, mm. yeah, it was basically poor sales. People in the, those countries complained about not having alcohol on the menu. Alcohol and McDonald's. Oh, yeah, I wish, honestly, I wish that would happen as well for McDonald's to have some alcohol. Can uh, I have a, uh, a rum and coke? Can I have a rum and coke with my um, yeah, quarter pounder, I... please? Exactly. And, and yeah, I, I think those, so these are just some reasons why McDonald's have just either been banned or just never taken off in these countries. My so it's a, it's a good strategy if you ever want to, looking to opening up a conglomerate uh, fast food chain. But, hey, some of these countries have KFC and Burger King, so Jeez. they're not complaining. Okay, okay. So they, they've, they've got this, this source of alternative unhealthy food from other, other suppliers. Yeah, I believe so. I, I believe with Jamaica as well, they complain that the McDonald's burger is too small, which I completely agree with, and that they preferred the larger size of the Burger King burger, which I completely uh... agree with is as well so you know yum on the bigger the better i always say the bigger the bigger the better that's what the jamaicans say and i agree yeah yeah me too me too one day i hope to um go to go to um jamaica and order one of their 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 burger king burgers and I, i i am really keen to be surprised as to how big it is well your idea of going to jamaica is really Jamaican me crazy to go as well. <laughs> uh, 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 oh, that's like a um, a bolt from heaven. Yeah, a Usain bolt. <laughs> who's that? Yeah, What's who's that? that? <laughs> oh, I think um, yeah, I think Jamaica. If if, if they really um, oh Jamaica, if they really want their seafood. They should look into getting the Norwegians to supply them some salmon. I'm sure they'll be more than happy to oblige. Yeah, and likewise for 
any McDonald's who need kiwi fruit, definitely mm. source it from New Zealand. Or if you want the original version, the go to China. Mm. Uh, although, yeah. you know, it's called the gooseberry rather than the kiwi fruit. So Yes, yes. So um, to all our listeners out there, next time you go to a uh, grocery store, a fruit shop, and you see a kiwi fruit, make sure you walk up to the the store owner and tell them that they've completely they've labeled it completely incorrectly and they should change the name to Chinese gooseberry immediately for fear of false advertising. And let us know how it goes. If yes. there's any brawls that happen because of that, then we're not liable for any of it. Yes. And since we've had this um this enlightening conversation, um, I'm going to go to a Japanese sushi shop straight afterwards and I'm going to ask them, the owner of that shop, how many generations the Japanese salmon sushi has been in their, in their, ha- in their family for. And if they said it's been in the family for more than two generations, I'm going to call bullshit on them. Yeah, or you can call the Norwegians and they'll get out their Viking swords out, hack them into pieces. Oh, no, 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 no. The, the Japanese wouldn't allow that. They'd rather um, commit seppuku than allow the Norwegians to, to, to take their dignity and their honor. Oh, too late already. Oh, shit! So, to all our viewers, that's the end of our show. I hope you learned something today. I certainly did. And we hope to see you again next time. Bye for now, everyone.